You are listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello and welcome to this very special show on Virgin Radio Pride. My name is Jack Guinness and we are here to celebrate the launch of my book, The Queer Bible. We have such an exciting show lined up for you. We are going to be chatting with one of my all-time heroes and contributor to the book and king of Virgin Radio. Can I say that? Queen of Virgin Radio? Graham Norton himself. We're going to be having a chat about love, life, being gay, coming out, going to San Francisco, crazy nights out on the town and his love of queer literature. Throughout the show, we're going to be hearing readings from various contributors from the book, including Munro Bergdorf and Russell Tovey. So what is the Queer Bible? Well, quite simply, it's a love letter to the LGBTQ plus community. The premise is I asked my heroes to write an essay about one of their heroes, someone who changed their life, someone that made them who they are, love who they are and set them on course to become the person they are today. The roster of contributors is incredible. I can't quite believe I managed to get all these amazing human beings together in one book. It's like my dream dinner party. We have Mickey Blanco, the incredible rapper, Sir Elton John, David Furnish, Courtney Act from RuPaul's Drag Race, writes a hilarious essay about Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Of course, as I mentioned before, we have Graham Norton. We have founder of UK Black Pride, Lady Phil, activist Munro Bergdorf, the hilarious Mae Martin, Paris Lees and Russell Tovey. First up, we are going to be hearing an extract from my chapter. I wrote about my hero RuPaul. I wrote about my lifelong obsession with RuPaul and how watching RuPaul perform with Elton John when I was about eight on TV changed my life forever. I was 12. The year was 1994. In a music video playing on a Saturday morning music television show, was it going live or CD UK? There she was, all 50 feet of her. Palpable sexual chemistry sparked between her and confirmed bachelor and suspected serial womanizer Elton John. She was probably his new girlfriend. That's how an unknown model had managed to snag such a great gig. She was so tall, she had to be a supermodel because that's what tall people did for a living unless they were employed as giants. Something deep down inside me knew she wasn't simply a woman. She was beyond the binary. She wasn't simply a man either. She was something more, more than the sum of her parts. A magical, forbidden, taboo creature sent to tempt, inspire, and drive us mad. Somehow, deep down, I knew Elton didn't really fancy women either, but together, as they dressed up as famous lovers from history, the illusion was irresistible. That's very funny. The day I recorded the audiobook, I stupidly... (laughs) I went out the night before, and I didn't have a lot to drink, but I had a few cocktails, and so the day when I went into the recording booth, I sounded like the little girl from The Exorcist, And then I drank lots of water and by the end of it, I just sounded like Mariella Frostrop. So that was fine. A little gravelly, but you could understand what I was saying. So now we're going to hear from one of the contributors to the book. We're going to be listening to Freddie McConnell reading from his essay about David Bowie. Freddie is an incredible writer and journalist and hosts the incredibly moving podcast about queer families called Pride and Joy. He documented his experience of pregnancy and birth as a trans man in the Biffa-nominated feature documentary Seahorse. Here's Freddie 
talking about how Bowie changed his life. A dearth of options back then meant Ziggy Stardust, Bowie's first all-encompassing stage persona, simply had to be an alien. His spiky copper hair, his sparkly, skin-tight suits, every manifestation, tangible or otherwise, of his gender fluidity was as new to audiences as it was shocking. In short, the context for reading Ziggy as we do today did not exist then. The next best thing was outer space, and specifically the space race, which Bowie had already culturally trademarked with his first number one hit, Space Oddity. Still, his otherworldliness did not make Ziggy avant-garde. He, perhaps they if the option had occurred, was not even left field. Ziggy was Bowie's first mainstream global smash. I imagine that for every hysterical young fan at his shows, there was an older onlooker, a parent or teacher, unable to look away from the spectacle, and yet unable, or too ashamed, to say why. Of course, back then, queer kids latched onto him too, like babies latch onto life-giving teats. The get-ups, his sinewy sensuality, and his transcendent lyrics would have shone a light in the darkest of closets. But judging by those nostalgic clip shows where celebrities take turns extolling Bowie's brilliance, every straight teen and their mate worshipped him too. Anyone in search of the novel, the scandalous, or just the melodic, could justifiably decide that Bowie was for them. That is such a moving essay. What I love about Freddie's piece is that Bowie didn't really ever talk about his sexuality or his gender identity. But for so many of us, he is a queer icon. And that's what I love about the term queer. It's so inclusive. It, it welcomes everyone. It welcomes people who think differently, who feel differently and who aren't afraid to express themselves. And Freddie's essay is such a nuanced piece about how an icon like Bowie changed his life cannot be more excited to be sharing with you an extract from Graham Norton's chapter on Armistead Mopin, who wrote Tales of the City. Graham's essay is so genius. He is obviously funny. We all know that. But it's the, the moving, open nature of the essay that really bowled me over. He kind of brings you in by making you laugh at the beginning and then takes you on a really personal journey. And it makes you realise that you're so used to hearing him interview other people. It's actually really lovely to hear him talking about himself. Now, I couldn't be more excited. We've got Graham Norton here with us to talk about love, life, his essay and just general gay stuff. It's very intimidating interviewing you, Graham. How are you? I'm all right. I always feel bad when people I've interviewed then have to interview me because now it'll become incredibly clear how useless I am. But I feel like interviewing you is like, I don't know, trying to do surgery on a doctor. It feels like I shouldn't really be trying to do it. Yeah, I don't think it's like that. (laughs) (laughs) So, first of all, I have one name for you and I would love you to tell everyone about this human being. David Villa Pando. Yes, this is like a a story from Victorian times when I tell you that I had a pen pal in L.A. And when I was in school in Bandon, we would write to each other. And then we continued while I was in college. And then we sort of tentatively came out to each other in our letters. But, you know, my coming out in my letter was very boring. He was doing things about it. His was like sort of, you know, fan fiction. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he said it to me. And uh, I decided to go and see him. And so I left university after two years and headed off to America to meet David Villapando. And I never did. I ran out of, I had a Rambler ticket on the bus and it ran out in San Francisco. And I mean, my mother, I remember talking to my mother and she goes, who's this David man? He keeps calling. <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, he probably thinks I'm dead because I'd never <laughs> even told him I'm not coming. Um, so I never met him. And it's a real regret in my life that I never met him. And I've tried to find him. I've done Google searches. I've done all that stuff. I've emailed various David Filipandos that exist in America. And I've never found him. So I think, and I hope I'm wrong, but I fear he may not be with us anymore. I think it's such almost like a romantic thing that you never met him because he was this abstract figure in your life that took you to San Francisco. I mean, in your essay in the Queer Bible, there's such a sense of place. You write about growing up in rural Ireland and rather hilariously and movingly, you talk about how it's hard to be gay by yourself and that you need someone else to be gay with. Well, I think it, it, it's something that will probably kind of chime with so many uh, people who grow up in a, in a rural community or in a smaller place where you don't get to sneak into the gay bar and stand around awkwardly and pretending to smoke. You know, you don't get to do any of that because there's nowhere to go. So I was in Cork. There probably would have been some gay people in Cork, but I felt like getting away was the, the easiest thing to do. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I moved where the gays were, um, which seemed an easier thing to do than kind of uh, seek out uh gay people in in Ireland clearly they were there and if I think if I'd gone to Dublin I would have found gay bars and I would have found discos and things like that but in West Cork it really felt like there was no one and it amazes me now that I, I you know I've been back to my school and I did the prize day and there are gay kids there are queer kids in the school and you know they're not visibly bruised they're not on crutches which uh, is astonishing to me that there is that level of acceptance and that level of openness in a rural community in Ireland where actually you can be a gay kid but Graham I would also say like I think people like you that are so visible and are in people's homes have really helped to change the tide in terms of people being less scared or understanding or feeling affection even towards gay people. And I think that culture has a huge part to play in political changes that happen. It does. But I think kind of if I've done anything, I think maybe I helped some straight, straight people kind of figure out that, you know, a gay person wasn't that dangerous. It wasn't that threatening. It was quite innocuous. Uh, but I think for young gay people, that kind of internalized homophobia, which is kind of heartbreaking. Yes. And, you know, I was on TV and I was, you know, I was just like Larry Grace in The Next Generation. I was that camp guy. At least I was out. At least I was kind of open and saying I am gay. But I was still very fey, very effeminate. He's saying he set the gay rights movement back 20 years. Yeah, that kind of thing. Well, I saw a documentary once and they were talking to some young gay boys down in in Brighton. And they were basically saying, oh, they didn't want to be me. They didn't want to be Graham Norton. Oh, we don't want to be like Graham Norton. And what was heartbreaking was that they were. They were just kind of 
five little camp boys in shiny <laughs> in a, suits in a bar in in Brighton and I thought oh, but you are me you <laughs> are that camp boy and I think that's one of the it's one of the difficulties I think around uh, gayness is that thing that our our ideal our male ideal is still quite hetero and we haven't quite embraced our femininity and what makes us special and what makes us sensitive and what makes us all those other things. I think that's kind of the last bastion, but it is happening now. I think kind of, you know, all the discussions around gender fluidity are great because it's opening up an awareness that you don't have to be one sort of man. You can be all sorts of different men. I love what you said before about the the internalised homophobia, the the things that we do to ourselves. And we all do it. I grew up policing my behaviour and I did it for my safety. But I I hated how sensitive I was. I hated how feminine I was. Those are all the things I got bullied for. And ironically, those are the things now that I love most about myself. They're the things, you're right, that make me different, that make me unique, that make me able to, to do a project like this. Yeah, and I hope it's different for kids now. I really do. Like I say, when I went back to the school and I saw those kids, it really heartened me. I thought, oh, maybe it is possible to be, you know... A f- and I mean, back when I was growing up, it was possible for me to be a... F- I mean, I, I, I think back to my parents sending me off to primary school aged four. I mean, it must have been terrifying for them because they were sending this really effeminate little boy who, you know, loved anything fabulous and, you know, I loved my sister's clothes more than my own. And they must have thought, oh, he's going to get killed. <laughs> oh, don't. When I was four or five before I went to school, they, and I'm now realising as you're saying that, what they must have been thinking. I've never really thought about it before, but they said that I had to pick a football team because all the other boys would have a football team. And apparently I said, but I don't like football, mummy. And they said, well, you have to pick a team. You have to. And I went, no, because I'd be lying because I don't like football. And then off I went to school. <laughs> it turns out I do like football. My mother gave me the advice of, um, you know, because obviously she knew that I, w- I had a target on my back. And she gave me this advice, don't react. When the other children pick on you, don't react. And I think it's led to some emotional coldness in later life. But as a child, it worked to treat because actually that's what bullies want. Bullies do want a reaction. They want you to cry. They want you to try and fight them. They want that. And so it really worked. I was never bullied as, as you know, as you flamboyant and strange as I was, never bullied. Do you think also you developed your humour as a way to protect yourself? Yeah, no, Absolutely. You know, you discover that that is, that's kind of a superpower in in a school context. If you can make the teachers laugh, make the kids laugh, then you'll never be in with the in crowd, but you're not, you're not that guy. So I was wondering, when you were talking about going off to San Francisco and how you could have gone to Dublin, I did a similar thing. I ran away to New York when I was about 17, 18, and I, I lived in London. And I wondered whether there's something about going really far away so you can now finally be who you are. Was that some of the attraction of being able to go to San Francisco because you didn't know anyone there and you could kind of like start again? It is that thing, isn't it, of of reinvention. Um, And for me, I mean, a weird thing's happened in my life because what I hated about being in Bandon and being in Cork was there was no anonymity. You know, people knew me. You know, I was at university, but people, I I felt like I couldn't experiment or step out of line because I was known. 
And so that's what I loved about America, as you say, was that kind of anonymity. Uh, and now I've done this weird thing in my life. <laughs> I was going to say, now everyone... I have made myself the absolute opposite of that. And I don't know what that's about, sort of weird psychological thing I've done to myself. But certainly going to America, going to a very, very, very big pond seemed wildly attractive because you could start again and you could reinvent yourself. And it just made you free. It, it made you free to make mistakes and do stupid things and try things you'd never have tried. Yeah, so being in San Francisco really opened all that up. It really kind of knocked the edges off me and made me realize, oh, the world's bigger than I thought and it's more varied than I thought. There's room for everyone. Well, I mean, knocked the edges off. You landed and gay pride was in full swing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Quite the I... baptism of fire. It was it was like a bad film. <laughs> and on the bus, I remember I was sitting beside some guy and I think maybe was he flirting? I don't know. But he had a Walkman <laughs> and I didn't have a Walkman. And so I think I was reading and he said, oh, do you want to listen to music for a while? And I went, oh, thank you. And he put the headphones on my ears as we were coming over the bridge and it was um, everybody's <laughs> oh talking gosh. from Midnight Cowboy and it was just like being inside a movie and then I get off the bus in San Francisco and a flatbed truck full of screaming drag queens comes around a corner and you know little me has got to go well I, I heard it was gay but I, this <laughs> I didn't is a lot. know it was this gay <laughs> uh, but then I discovered I walked up the hill to Market Street and I discovered oh no it's gay pride there's a parade on that's why there's all these drag queens on trucks and uh, yeah, it was like San Francisco saying welcome and making a big statement at the same time. And while in San Francisco, you started reading the stories, Tales of the City by Armistead Maupin. Why did that have such an effect on you? If people are familiar with the books, they originally were serialised in the San Francisco Chronicle. So every morning there'd be another episode, about 500 words or so. And because they were in the newspaper, I just, you know, snobby me thought, well, they must be rubbish if they're <laughs> in the paper. And then I think Mouse, the main character, ended up in London. So I was intrigued and he was experiencing Earl's Court and I'd been to Earl's Court the summer before. And so I was reading about that and I was that kind of drew me in. And then I became hooked. They were, I mean, he's brilliant. The storytelling is so addictive. And then I started reading them every morning. And... It's only looking back, of course, you realise how revolutionary his stories were because they were the first bits of fiction I'd ever read where gay people weren't automatically tragic, frightening, frightened or whatever. That wasn't their drama. Their drama wasn't that they were gay. Their drama was that they had fallen in love with, they were having an affair with the wrong person or there was some money hidden in the basement or, you know, or it was soap opera plots but with gay people in it. And it, that was so revolutionary then. It lightened the world. It made it seem like you could live a gay life that wasn't in the shadows, that wasn't conducted purely in bars after dark. Now that seems... I guess so commonplace, but back then in the 80s, that was really outrageous and really revolutionary. It was, it was a game changer for me as, as a reader and as a gay man. It made me see what my life could be like. It's interesting. The book, The Queer Bible, is all about identity and about the power of naming who we are and seeing who we are through our heroes. And then Mae Martin's essay really annoyingly 
undermines the whole premise of the book and ruins everything. Because May's essay is about Tim Curry, who never talked about their identity or their sexuality. And May makes a really interesting point that that perhaps some of those labels, some of those routines, some of those identities that we that we put on ourselves actually end up trapping us. Do you think maybe once we've come out of the closet, we can sometimes find ourselves entering into a new type of closet? I mean, I think less so. I think when I first came out, certainly in London, and there was, you know, we, as certainly as gay men, and actually, yeah, other parts of the queer community as well, but, you know, there was a real sense of finding a uniform and finding a way of looking and, you know, and you stuck to that. That's who you were. And that that was the bar you went to. Those are the people you slept with. And it became, you know, sort of uber gay. Not only am I attracted to the same sex, I'm attracted to the person who looks like me. <laughs> so, yes, I think we get stuck in, we get stuck in those things. But equally... I think we shouldn't shy away from those things. I think we're allowed to love the Wizard of Oz. I think we're allowed to love Judy Garland. I think we're allowed to, you know, sob when Liza sings <laughs> some terrible song really badly. Uh, I, I think the worst thing in the world is to shame other gay people for getting it wrong. You know, I remember when um, uh, Sam Smith had just come out Certainly, I I remember when they won their Oscar and there was a lot of uh, online criticism about uh, the speech they'd given. Graham, this is the reason why I started the Queer Bible. It was that moment. It's so weird that you said this. Yeah. So it was Sam Smith at the Oscars and in their speech, they gave a really heartfelt speech saying that they were probably the first gay person to win an Oscar. Then they went backstage to the world's press and were promptly informed in front of the world's press that not only were they not the first gay person to win an Oscar, they weren't even the first gay person to win that category of Oscar. And then the world piled on, and that's what prompted me to start the Queer Bible because everyone was having such a go at Sam. And then I was thinking, I don't know my own queer history. And that's why that's why I founded the thing in the first place. And I totally agree, we need to be so much more forgiving of each other when we when we slip up or we maybe have gaps in our knowledge. Oh, isn't that interesting? And also that thing of, oh, you're doing it wrong. Hmm. No, you're doing it for you. You're doing it your way. It's, you know, it's like if somebody comes out really late in life, well, yeah, you didn't do that. That wasn't your journey, but it's their journey. You know, and I think it's really important that we don't stop prescribing how you navigate all of this. Uh, you know, we all stumbled our way through it I know, as best we could and we've ended up where we've ended up and maybe we do some things differently, but you can't. And I, I just feel like there is, I, I get a sense of that. Oh, you're being gay wrong. And uh, no, thank you very much. <laughs> you be gay the way you want to be gay and I'll be gay the way I want to be gay. And that's surely okay. I'm going to put that on a T-shirt. You can be gay how you want to be gay, and I'm going to be gay how I'm going to be gay. (laughs) A sleeveless (laughs) T-shirt. Graham, thank you so much for talking to me. I think we're basically ending with a message of love and tolerance within our queer community. Yeah, and my deep rage as well. And you're also a very angry man.
Yeah, I'm very, very angry and I want people to know it. Uh, I am Graham. Hear me roar. On that, Bombshell, thank you so much for joining us, Graham. It's been so lovely to chat to you. And you, Jack. Thank you so much. Well, that was an absolute dream come true, getting to talk to one of my favourite people and heroes, Graham Norton. Graham is now going to read an extract from his incredible chapter from the book, The Queer Bible. So much has been written about Armistead Mopan and the extraordinary success of the world he created in Tales of the City. Mary Ann, Michael, Mrs. Madrigal, all living and loving in the ramshackle splendour of 28 Barbary Lane, an address as real to me as any that have ever been my actual home. People quite rightly focus on his storytelling, the characterizations, the humour and the huge amount of heart in his work. For me, there was also something else, something life-changing and important. He wrote about gay men and women, but that wasn't their defining feature. Their sexuality wasn't a problem or a secret. It was simply an unapologetic part of their lives that also had room for friends and jobs and many, many twists and turns. For me, this was revolutionary. These were gay people that were hedonistic at the same time as being domestic, political as well as playful, happy and heartbroken. Being gay hadn't crushed them or forced them to live in a constricted box. It was only through reading Tales of the City that I slowly realised that previously I hadn't thought that possible. I know it's not strictly a gay anthem, but when Graham mentioned driving in the Greyhound bus towards San Francisco over the hill and the man who may or may not have been flirting with him, he was definitely flirting with him, popped headphones over his ears and played Everybody's Talking At Me. It just made me ah oh, dream of being in America on the open road with a handsome man popping his <laughs> headphones over my head. Oh, that was dreamy. Next up, we have... Monroe Bergdorf reading from her essay on the documentary film Paris is Burning. Now, for many people, Paris is Burning is a really iconic film. If you haven't seen it, you must do. It's all about the New York drag ball scene and about the young kids that take part in it and the drag mothers that run the houses. It's it's basically what Pose is based on. And if you're a fan of RuPaul's Drag Race, like every other human being with a pulse, you'll realise that a lot of RuPaul's phrases, catchphrases and lingo and a, a lot of the games that they play are named after lines from that movie. Monroe's essay is so powerful because she writes about the beauty of finally seeing other people who are like you and that can speak you into existence. You can't be what you can't see. And Monroe talks about the first time that she ever saw trans people in a documentary and it awakened something within her. I first watched Paris is Burning when I was living in Brighton. I had just made my first trans friend and she was like a mother to me. She was stunning. Absolutely stunning, but also completely, through lack of a better word, normal. There was nothing out of the ordinary really about her. She was just an incredible person, but she was also trans. Up until that point, I hadn't knowingly been close friends with a trans person. I got to know her, hear her story and where she'd come from, what she'd been through. She was the first person who actually told me, I think you're trans. Up until that point, I knew it, but I was in denial. Doing her mother trans bit, trying to get me to understand myself, she recommended films that I should watch. She showed me Paris is Burning. 
1990 documentary film chronicles the underground New York City ballroom culture and the legendary houses that competed in it. But it's about so much more. The real-life Black, Italian, Latinx, gay and transgender cast offer a window into a world on the fringes of society. The film is such a central part of queer culture, you'll know much of its lingo without even realising where it's from. House mothers, reading, realness, shade, opulence. All phrases immortalised in Paris's burning. Our culture, so often erased or hidden to protect ourselves, recorded forever. I love that essay. The whole point of the queer Bible is that I want us, everyone, not just LGBTQ plus people, to realise and celebrate the incredible contribution that queer people have been making to our history and culture. I want young people especially to know that they walk in the footsteps of some of the most fiercest, beautiful, brilliant, bravest human beings to walk the face of this planet. And any time we need, we can tap into that power. Next up, we have an extract read by one of Britain's most exciting young writing talents, Paul Mendes. His debut novel, Rainbow Milk, was released to huge critical acclaim. He writes so movingly about the journey of a young guy who comes to London, leaves behind his family, his religion, and goes on a journey of self-discovery. It's really moving. It's beautifully written. It's funny. It's sexy. It's heartbreaking. And I was so excited when he agreed to be part of the Queer Bible Collection. He writes about James Baldwin, who wrote one of the first gay novels I ever read, Giovanni's Room. And he changed my life forever. Just like in Monroe's essay, I felt seen for the first time. I realised that I wasn't alone and I realised that there were other people out there like me. Here is Paul Mendez on James Baldwin. I first became aware of James Baldwin when I was 20. I was living in Tunbridge, Kent, and had just quit my degree in automotive engineering before the end of the first year. I lived with, and had been befriended by, a group of photography students, a relief after being bullied for nine months by the lads on my engineering course, three girlfriendless Asian boys with customised cars and no self-respect. My new friends were white, middle class, and thought of themselves as liberal and creative. I was working class, black, and had grown up around white people in the West Midlands. These Kentish types, to my eyes, were a superior kind of white people, people from whom I could learn the finer things in life. My diction changed, adopting theirs. I ate their unseasoned, more expensive food, smoked their mild weed, listened to their roots reggae vinyl, swayed to the music, toddler-like, against my body's natural rhythms, like they did, watched art house cinema with them, modelled for them. I'd always thought of myself as being white, but now I thought of myself as being a privileged white, just like them. Then, one of them, I can't remember who, pushed James Baldwin's 1968 novel Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone into my hands. I cannot thank them enough, and they will probably never know what a life-saving thing they did for me, as I've lost touch with most of them. I only realise now, having recently reread it for the first time, that my novel Rainbow Milk could have been based directly on it, 
so deep did it penetrate. The original copy I read is long lost, and I do not remember whether I was told on being handed the book whether Baldwin was black or not, gay or not. In 2002, the internet existed, but we did not yet go straight for it without thinking. We didn't even yet Google much. We asked Jeeves. We still asked each other questions or phoned a friend. We still went to libraries, but perhaps I didn't bother. Perhaps I just read the book and asked questions afterwards. I don't remember, and I didn't start to keep a journal until two years later. I, myself, was still in the closet, just about gripping it shut with the tips of my fingers from the inside, powerless to stop someone ripping it open from the outside, humiliating me, showing me up to be an incorrigible, rabid, AIDS-ridden pervert, as I was raised to believe homosexuals were, and worst of all, that I was unable to conceal it. It's really interesting because for many queer people, yes, we're happy now. Yes, pride is about celebration. But for so many of us, we have gone through such traumatic times. And that sums up the queer experience to me. Yeah, it's great that we're all dressed up and dancing around and celebrating. But also there is a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. I think that's why we love divas, because as brilliant and glamorous and triumphant as they are, they've been through this trauma that we all have. And I think it's really important to admit both. So Paul's essay was really moving to me. It really affected me because it it chimed with the pain and the isolation that I felt growing up. But it also ends on a note of hope that when you do accept who you are and you love who you are and you find your new chosen family, there is freedom. The Queer Bible Project is about bringing LGBTQ plus histories and stories out into the light so we can all celebrate them. For too long, LGBTQ plus people have either hidden who they are. I know that I've done that in my own life. I've hidden my identity in order to stay physically and mentally safe. Or alternatively, LGBTQ plus people have had their sexuality or their gender erased from the history books. It's been kind of straightwashed, if you will, and excluded from official narratives. A group that have been really affected by this are black British lesbians. The movement in the 80s is not very well documented. And Paula Akpan has written a blisteringly brilliant, moving, well-researched essay about the women that were organising in the 80s and fighting for all of our rights. As a white, cis, very privileged gay man, I owe so much to black British lesbians fighting for our rights as a community and fighting for their own rights and visibility. And I think now as a global LGBTQ plus community, we really need to stand up and protect and fight for black and brown lesbians and trans members of our community that have for decades fought for our rights. Now it's time to turn up and show up for them. Born and raised in London and having lived in South London for the last three years, it feels almost shameful to share that I only began learning about the UK black women's movement a few years ago. Having looked to African-American feminists as the default on theorising black women's liberation, I wasn't aware of the rich and complicated history of black women organising in the UK that was quite literally on my doorstep. As academics at Kwugo, Emma Julu and Francesca Sabandi note, too often when we think about black feminist theory and activism, we look to the particular black American experience and seek to universalise and apply it to Europe, 
positioning racism and anti-blackness as an import into European countries like the UK and erasing histories of anti-imperialist action from black feminists in those nation states. That is such an important, brilliant essay. And I'm so proud that in the Queer Bible, we are giving the attention and the praise that those women deserve. Now, our final contributor is one of my favourite people. He's one of Britain's most loved actors. Everyone fancies him. He's funny. He's charming. I basically hate him. <laughs> it's, of course, Russell Tovey. His podcast, Talk Art, has kind of opened up the rather stuffy, intimidating art world to everybody. It's hugely popular and it's very funny. I was so happy when he agreed to be part of the Queer Bible Project and his essay on David Robilliard is fascinating. I'm really embarrassed to say I'd never heard of David Robilliard before Russell told me about him. And that's the beauty of the Queer Bible. That's the beauty of queer culture. They're always new icons to learn about. David's story is really moving and Russell writes so openly about how he affected and influenced his life. It's a really beautiful, inspiring story. David's work is full of honesty and romantic longing. And this existence spirit of his was something that I longed to encapsulate. As a gay man myself, moving from Essex first to North London and then East, I sensed in David's work the potential for an authentic life. An authentic gay life, full of excitement and lust, and relished with the possibility of love. Growing up under Section 28, the idea of open passion, mutual respect, and the potential for an honest and kind, happy gay relationship didn't really feel possible at first. Internalised homophobia pathed a rocky road in my mind, filled with pitfalls and secrecy. David's pride and honesty were an advocate for hope, advocating for an authentically lived gay experience. In his written word, it's all possible. It all feels so casual and, in some of his verse, ordinary. Oh, to be gay and ordinary. To reach a moment in time where being out and proud is so uninteresting and average, so normalised and commonplace, that to exist in this sleepy sweet spot would feel kinda, well, meh. But for me, an average existence felt aspirational. Feeling like the odd one out, the one in ten, the shame he's never going to have kids every time you entered a room really did feel like a bore. Now it feels like I belong to a club of some of the luckiest few. Ah, oh, that's so beautiful. And it sums up the whole queer Bible. It is a club. The queer community is a club that welcomes you with open arms, where all are welcome to celebrate who they are and be their authentic selves. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. It's been emotional sharing all these stories with you. I've been so excited to talk to Graham Norton. I'm so excited to share the vision of the Queer Bible. The tagline for the project is, we stand on the shoulders of giants. It's time to learn their names. And it's through learning about those who went before us that we can be empowered to move forward and be our authentic selves. I've been Jack Guinness. Thank you so much for joining me for this Queer Bible special for Virgin Radio Pride.